Hey folks, I am Rebecca Blonde on the Belly of the Beast, and I have with me today Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much for joining me. It's such an honor to speak with you. Um, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule, which includes seeing patients. Unlike so many of these supposed COVID experts, I was so happy to hear that you were still seeing patients. Um, I think most of us are familiar with you from the Senate hearings and the widely circulated Joe Rogan interview. It was about a year ago. But I'd love it if you could tell my audience a bit about yourself and how your credentials as an epidemiologist and cardiologist have led you to your current viewpoints um, particularly with regard to the pandemic response and the vaccine. Well, I'm delighted to be on the program. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas, and I hold degrees from Baylor University, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. I finished top, in top of my class, uh, the uh, University of Michigan for graduate school in epidemiology and Southern Methodist University for graduate liberal arts studies. Uh, a degree I got uh, later on in life. Completed my residency at University of Washington in Seattle, uh, my cardiology fellowship at what's now the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. I held a variety of academic positions over the course of my career. I was a chief academic scientific officer for Ascension Health, a chief of cardiology at a major university. And uh, when the COVID-19 hit, I redirected all of my cardiovascular uh, and internal medicine research towards the virus and the viral pandemic. And I started with understanding the epidemiology uh, of it. That means the distribution and determinants of disease. Uh, quickly organized with Italians and other colleagues across the United States and the world to come up with treatment protocols and then worked with community doctors to validate that they worked, that they reduced hospitalizations and deaths. And that took me through a whole series of interactions with the White House and the US Senate and then I moved on uh, in the, um, uh, you know, during the next years of the pandemic to really focus on safety and efficacy of the various products, the genetic products that were introduced and later on became mandated for people to take. I think we're in a very different position now than we were when you did um, the Rogan episode. And we have a considerable amount of data reflecting the dangers of the vaccine now. And this is largely unrecognized by public officials. I did see recently that the CDC and the FDA, they've begun to tentatively investigate the bivalent uh, Pfizer shots role. I think it's in a, a ischemic strokes in over 65s, but they've only conceded that there may be a link in those over 65 between one and three weeks post-vaccination compared to four to this is such a small cohort of people. Um, this is not uh, what the general public is particularly concerned about. I think most of the concern is related to long-term effects in the young. Um, so I just wanted to get into it. Can you break down the newest and most convincing research that has been shared about the vaccine and the effects it's having on young and healthy individuals? You know, I said on national TV over the last uh, several years, uh, particularly on Laura Ingram, I'm a frequent contributor on Fox and Ingram Angle, but though Laura... I think the CDC and FDA and NIH, they're running 18 months behind <laughs> interpreting yeah. the data. I mean, that was such a tepid you know, concern that they're looking into it now. There's over 1,250 peer-reviewed publications on COVID-19 vaccine injuries, disabilities, and deaths. 1,250 papers. They have a lot of papers to read to catch up on this safety disaster. Uh, I, let me just take stroke as an example. Uh, Dag Burhild and colleagues published in JAMA, a widely read journal, 
from three Nordic countries, and they reported on 7,750 neurologically devastating strokes that happened within 28 days of taking a COVID-19 vaccine. I mean, we, we don't have to go too far. The analyses are right there. They're in the peer-reviewed literature. What we know from our U.S. sources of data, our VAERS system, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, uh, through, through January now, uh, the, the CDC is telling us over 16,000 Americans have died within a few days of taking the vaccine. And what we know in VAERS is 86% of the time, the doctors or the nurses or the coroners are reporting it. Uh, we, we, do, we report, we make our VAERS report under <clears throat> threat if anything's falsified of imprisonment or federal fines. So what's in the VAERS system is verified. It is legitimate. It's serious. It's shocking that I'm here telling you that 16,000 Americans have lost their lives shortly after taking one of these uh, injections. <laughs> and we have so much uh, a collateral damage, hundreds of thousands of hospitalizations and ER visits. Uh, we have thousands and thousands of cases of myocarditis, blood clots, heart attacks, neurologic injury. The data keep pouring in. You know, the CDC has a, a voluntary reporting system called VSAFE. And they didn't want to release those data to America. And so under court order, they had to release it to the NGO ICANN. And in the VSAFE data, this was stunning. Seven to eight percent of people who take one of these products has to go to the emergency room or urgent care immediately because they're so ill. Some are hospitalized. Twenty-five percent are incapacitated that day or the day after. I mean, these are stunning government sources of data indicating the vaccines are they're simply not safe. Right. And I think everybody is going to have to overcome their normalcy bias because we all know somebody that has had an adverse reaction to the vaccine. Um, I know somebody that took the vaccine and they couldn't move their arm the, at the injection site, the entire arm for 48 hours, totally total paralysis of the arm. And everybody's acting like these, this is just normal, normal stuff. But something that people are not going to be able to overlook since uh, everybody's st still into their bread and circuses is this uh, young athlete death situation. Um, I recently read this research paper called Catecholamines are the Trigger of COVID-19 mRNA Vaccine-Induced Myocarditis. Um, I'll link that below for the, uh, for the audience. But it posits that hypercatecholaminergic state resulting from the vaccine, um, but also having a, a higher baseline level of catecholamines, I think from, uh, from androgens and, and from doing sports just generally, is creating something of a perfect storm, which is causing these sudden deaths, particularly in, in male athletes. And I'm not a physician. I was wondering if you could explain this theory and any supporting or negating evidence um, to my audience in, in layman's terms, I guess. You're doing pretty good with the pronunciation of that. <laughs> that was just really rolling. I started to think, wow, you sound like you're an ICU nurse. Well, oh, no, no. I come from a family of doctors and I'm a hypochondriac. So I... <laughs> well, well, let me say that before the pandemic, before the pandemic, myocarditis was rare. In a paper by Arola and colleagues from Finland, uh, they established the background rate at four cases per million per mirror. Typically young people, 90% uh, boys or men. And what we know there is we had current sets of guidelines that were followed. We can never let people with myocarditis participate in sports because a surge of adrenaline, which is a catecholamine, could be the trigger for sudden cardiac death. That's before the pandemic. So this was well known before the pandemic. We could never let that happen. And now we see a pattern emerging where there's deaths of young people. It's unexplained 
no antecedent illness. Uh, we're talking no diagnosis uh, ahead of time, no suicide, no drug overdose, no motor vehicle accident, and dying during two um, uh, scenarios. One is during uh, sleep, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., and then also the other one is on the athletic playing field. The commonality there is what Dr. Flavio Catagiani published in the paper you quoted, and that is a surge in catecholamines. We actually have a surge in catecholamines or adrenaline as we wake up in the morning, and then obviously on the athletic playing field. And America has seen sports figure after sports figure now uh, have collapses and, uh, you know, unless the family comes out and tells us uh, that, in fact, they haven't taken one of these products, uh, what we know is that from two published studies, one by Mansuangian and the other one by Lepesic, uh, Bangkok, Thailand, and Basel, Switzerland, respectively, about 2.5% of people who take these sustain heart damage. And the heart damage, about half of the time, it's not felt. And so with no symptoms, a small scar develops in the heart. And then under the right circumstances in a smaller subset, uh, an abnormal heart rhythm can start, especially during exercises called re-entrant ventricular tachycardia that degenerates to ventricular fibrillation. And then there's a cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. This is now well-described as reported in the literature. There's superimposed problems. Uh, so for instance, University of Iowa is reported in a woman who had what's called a prolonged QT interval on EKG at baseline. She takes uh, administration number one, administration number two, has a passing out episode. Doctors can't figure it out. And they put in a, an implantable monitor and then ill-advised, she takes the booster and has a full-blown cardiac arrest, uh, undergoes prolonged resuscitation and about 14 shocks before they got her back. And she never really recovered. She went to a rehab facility uh, these are now well-documented in the literature. Uh, a paper, for, again, from Thailand, uh, uh, Itawit and colleagues, reported that a genetic mutation called the SCN5A mutation, which is a sodium channel mutation, could be a genetic predisposition. They found about a seven-fold increased risk in sudden death with that mutation once somebody takes one of these novel products. So I think there's going to be issues on the product side and clearly on the patient side, but there's no doubt about it in the peer-reviewed literature, people are at risk for sudden death, particularly young people, men more than women, and during these two periods of time. Uh, vaccines are pulled from the market for considerably fewer advents than we're, uh, adverse events than we're seeing right now. Why have they not pulled these from the market? Not only this, they have encouraged and demanded, mandated that people take it. In an unprecedented manner, what we learned is that Pfizer was collecting information. They were the lead manufacturer. They had their vaccine approved December 10th, 2020. And uh, as people started to take the products in the public program, families were reporting deaths and they were reporting to Pfizer. They're simply calling Pfizer. Pfizer was recording these. Pfizer had amassed 1,223 deaths uh, of people who took it within a few days. And, uh, and, and Pfizer did not, uh, you know, release that to the American public, uh, when, when under court order, they were demanded to release it to a, uh, to, you know, a, a NGO, they, the FDA stepped in and the lawyer for the FDA didn't want to re release that document for 55 years. Uh, so Pfizer didn't pull it off the market and the FDA didn't tell Pfizer to pull it off the market and the FDA wanted to cover all that up. 
So clearly 1,223 deaths within 90 days is way too much. It's not acceptable. 5, 10, 15, no more than 50 deaths should have been off the market. Uh, we started to see an uptick in the VAERS system uh, on January 22nd, 2021. Uh, uh, that was with only about 27 million people taking the, the first injection. Uh, by my estimates, this these products should have all been off the market by February 1st of of 2021, there shouldn't have been any more market entries. And, and and the government should have apologized to Americans and said, listen, it didn't work out. Uh, these were unsafe. And they pulled them off the market as, as quickly as they could. But well, they never should have been introduced. They had insufficient trial periods. And uh, I, I just I just cannot believe that this was rolled out and basically tested on the general public. But that's a fair point. You know, I in the first year of the pandemic, by invitation, I was a regular contributor in The Hill. I wrote op-eds in The Hill, a conservative uh, you know, Washington insider journal. And in August of 2020, before the vaccines finished the clinical trials, I published an op-ed said the great gamble of the COVID-19 vaccine development program. And the reason why I wrote that is I was articulating your concerns uh, that these were rushed through, they weren't ready, they had a dangerous mechanism of action uh, it was a, it was a shot in the arm, which wouldn't give good mucosal protection in the nose anyway. It's not it wasn't even a nasal mist uh, product, and so uh, you know I had great uh, misgivings about the entire program. And boy, when I look back, I think I was the only public figure to make the right call. You're right; they should have never come out. They came out after abbreviated clinical trials, and within 90 days, we had a product disaster on our hands. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've heard so many lies during COVID. And I would think that the biggest lie is that the science is settled. Any scientist or doctor worth his salt first recognizes that science and medicine evolve with new information. Why are doctors and scientists abandoning everything they've learned about inferential thinking in favor of falling back on completely untested government claims? I'm one of the most published doctors certainly in my field in the world in history, I have over 660 listings in the National Library of Medicine. That means I've read a lot of studies, I've interpreted a lot of data, and I've written a lot. I have never written the phrase, the science, science is subtle. I've never written that phrase. You know, that is a dismissive term uh, that somehow claims that someone is judged that it's over with and someone's, uh, you know, decided a finality. Uh, you know, science is, as you pointed out, it's constantly unfolding. It relies on actually two forms of thinking. One is deductive thinking. That's, you know, based on starting with a law or a principle and then applying it in practice. And then it relies largely on the second type of thinking, inferential. And you mentioned that inferential means we're constantly observing nature and then drawing our conclusions and things change over time. And boy, did this virus change over time. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about doctors and their role in all of this. Um, so much schooling is required, uh, ongoing maintenance of credentials. You guys are a skilled, schooled bunch. Um, why have doctors specifically been unable or maybe unwilling to stand against government mandates in the face of emerging evidence? And why at this point will they not admit the truth, especially about the vaccine? I think initially doctors were driven out of fear for the first time they thought uh, they could actually, you know, contract an illness and die themselves. And, you know, the doctors of my generation, we never faced a yellow fever. We didn't face the, the Spanish flu. Uh, you know, this was our first real truth test. And uh, there's, there's no checkbox on the application to medical school about, you know, having courage. 
It, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some doctors like myself, we quickly jumped out there. We treated patients. We knew we were taking risks. Most of us contracted the illness in the first year. We got through it. And we went on and we went on to, to really take the issue at hand. The issue at hand is people were getting sick and some high-risk people were being hospitalized and some worse died. And that was all preventable with multiple, multiple drug early treatment. It just had the research had to be done and we did it. Uh, but what many doctors retreated to the sidelines out of fear and then they watched as things unfolded. And then before you know it, by December of 2020, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines came out and most of the doctors lined up in droves to take the, to take the products. They all did. Uh, the estimates are 96% of doctors took them. So once, once they've taken it and they've bought into the program, now that was a sealed fate. The program was don't attempt to treat COVID-19, undermine anything that's going to treat the illness and jump onto the complete and total promotion of a one-pronged strategy, and that is immunization. Yep, yep. I would have to disagree, though. I think it takes a lot of courage to be a doctor because you have to accept the responsibility that your line of decision making um, could end somebody's life. And and I think that a lot of doctors have kind of lost their way and, and don't see the weight of that responsibility. I mean, what has happened here? It's been not just a disservice to the public. They, they've destroyed people's lives. Um, and And it seems like nobody cares about the Hippocratic Oath anymore. It's true. You know, malpractice is when there's a deviation of practice from the community standard of care. The community standard of care was established early in outpatient illness where multi-drugs uh, treatment protocols arose. Uh, FLCCC had an inpatient protocol in March of 2020. That's early. Association of American Physicians and Surgeons had a treatment protocol by October of 2020 based on my seminal paper in the American Journal of Medicine in August of 2020. And doctors all over the country were treating the illness. So the community standard of care was born. What we had is once we had this community standard of care uh, developed, what we had is we had uh, doctors that had a duty to treat high-risk patients or a duty to refer. Many doctors did neither one of them. Many doctors actually told patients there was no treatment. Uh, so th those are, you know, they constitute malpractice. And I think each and every doctor uh, that did that is going to have to face their day of reckoning. There's no doubt about it. But to make matters worse, medical boards, the CDC, NIH, and FDA, they all attempted for the first time in history to interfere with the community standard of care. Doctors determine the community standard of care, never medical boards or agencies. You know, I prescribe medicines all day long. I, 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 I you know, order diagnostic procedures, interpret them. I've never had the government step in and say, here, here's your standard of care. It doesn't exist. Right, right, right. Um, one of the major issues resulting from this government PSYOP is that trust in doctors, um, even in Western medicine, is I, I think it's completely shattered. And while I generally believe that this is a good thing because people are far too reliant on medical solutions to lifestyle problems, it does make it difficult for, for good doctors like you to share information. Um, do you think that widespread skepticism of the medical system is a, a positive development uh, in modern Western society? Boy, that's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm a little bit afraid of this wave of distrust, which is clearly uh, justified. 
Um, I'm a little bit leery of uh, shortfalls in the provision of care or people starting to walk away from, you know, very affordable evidence-based strategies to reduce common illnesses uh, and risk of common illnesses like cardiovascular disease and cancer. I'm a little bit of afraid of a backlash. You know, all these patients who are upset at their doctors, you know, one thing most of them didn't do, they didn't tell the doctor that they're concerned about the safety of the vaccines. They actually didn't look the doctor in the eye and say, do you think I should take one of these? And the doctor says, yes. I listen, I'm concerned about the safety of them. I don't think they're safe enough for me. And give the doctor the feedback. Most of the patients say they don't trust their doctors, but they ran out of the office and they didn't take the corrective steps. If doctors heard that all day long, I guarantee it would start to sink in. That's true. Um, I wanted to go back to this uh, normalcy bias related to uh, the vaccine and vaccine injury. I'm seeing it everywhere because these people that they were told unflinchingly that the vaccine was safe and effective. There was no skepticism from the public entertained by any government agency and no questions answered, weren't even allowed to be asked. Um, people took this vaccine. They gave it to their children, their children that they love. And it's easier to ignore the evidence right now than to admit that you made a decision that may have harmed yourself and your loved ones. Um, and, and I applaud these people that are courageous enough to admit that they have made a, a grievous error. Uh, but what can be done now if you're in this position? Is there anything that vaccinated individuals can do to reduce the potential for long-term sequela if they've made it out of the um, acute post-vaccination period? Well, let's take the first part of your question. Whereas when there is a side effect, we need full disclosure of the status. There can be no more hidden vaccine status. People need to come out. If, there, if there's been a sudden death, the family needs to come out and say yes or no. This is a public health crisis. Yes. There have been far too many of these cases where the family is remorseful, regretful, they're in hiding, and they won't reveal the status. And it's just wrong uh, because we know that, again, the, the you know, two major fatal syndromes can be myocarditis and sudden cardiac death or fatal blood clots. And yes. there are now two studies, one by uh, Schwab and colleagues from Germany, one by Chavez from Colombia, showing the same thing. Uh, when individuals die after taking it, 70 to 80% of the time, there's an obvious pathology that's occurred, heart inflammation, blood clots, uh, neurologic damage. It's obvious. Autopsy studies. So we need people to come out and disclose the vaccine status because we have to figure out who's at risk next. People are starting to go into a panic, uh, but the first step is people have to come clean and just give their status. They had to give their status to go into restaurants. Remember, people originally were probably taking selfies with their cards. Remember right, that? Right, right. You don't see that anymore. And now they care about medical privacy. <laughs> right. I know, but think about it. You don't see any more of those shots of people saying they probably took their card. Those are gone now. Gone. Right. I haven't seen one in, in a long time. So uh, we need disclosure. Uh, and then the second point is that it looks like the risks are cumulative. So the first point is, you know, as a cumulative for both the illness and for the injection. So uh, the in take, taking injection one, injection two, they don't work. So you get the illness, take injection three, just keep you know loading the body with the Wuhan spike protein. That's what's causing all this disease and risk. I think, I really do think it's cumulative. So the first point is don't take any more. Right, right. No, don't take any more. It's very important. The second point is be vigilant. 
we think some of these cases could be saved. People who have chest pain, effort intolerance, uh, passing out spells, they really need to see an internist and cardiologist start to get the test. The swollen legs, uh, they need a test for blood clots, ultrasound. We need a, a, a much greater degree of vigilance. People are presenting really just in these calamitous situations because of you know a lack of insight that they've taken something into their body where the FDA agrees mm -hmm. it causes heart damage. You should expect right. it. The FDA says it happens. Blood clots, the FDA says that. Neurologic damage, the FDA says this. We should just stay within the realm of the FDA agreed upon damage that's happening to the body. Uh, beyond that, people said, well, how do I get it out? So now it's buyer's remorse. You know, how do we detox? Paper by Rodkin and colleagues from Stanford showed that messenger RNA looks like it's stuck in the body. Uh, months afterwards, it's stuck in the lymph nodes. I haven't seen a single paper showing it gets out of the body. Uh, it's ever? Really, ever. I'm not, I haven't seen a single paper. This is really disturbing because this messenger RNA at least in one paper now, it looks like it reverse transcribes. It looks like it, the dwell is long enough. The body has an endogenous reverse transcriptase called line one. It lines up base pairs opposite of the, the code uh, of the uh, messenger RNA product. And then it anneals these base pairs into what's called a plasmid. And that goes into the nucleus and then intercalates into human DNA. It looks like it happens papers by Alden, first author, Yang D. Marinus, very senior uh, uh, basic scientist from Malmo, Sweden. Many are trying to confirm this now. No one's disputed this paper. This is very disturbing. So it looks like the installation is for the long-term. Spike protein, Bruce Patterson and Intel D Incel DX has shown after the respiratory infection and the, uh, and the injections that the spike protein is long-lasting, probably months to many years. Oh, so we have this accumulation. Genetic material, there's no answer for this right now. It's not broken down by human enzymes. There's simply no answer for it. Spike protein, uh, we're looking for uh, uh, ways of managing it. Most of it's inside CD16 positive monocytes. Natural infection is the S2 or the outer segment. After the vaccines, it's both the S1 and the S2 segments, full length spike protein. Recent paper by Yonker and colleagues from Harvard, Harvard School of Medicine, 16 young people in Massachusetts General Heart Hospital with heart damage after taking it. 16, if you can imagine, there shouldn't be a single case. So these poor people are in the hospital and they do tests and they find free floating spike protein in those who have taken it and the antibodies don't neutralize it. So there's almost like the library of antibodies induced are misdirected they're not neutralizing the spike protein. Those who did not have myocarditis had the antibodies match the spike protein produced. So we're understanding more, but what a disaster this is to let oh, this out yeah. in the public and have us learn as young people are in the hospital sustaining heart damage. My um, my heart is broken. In terms of detoxification, uh, you know, I've tried all different um, treatments in these syndromes. So the traditional ones, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, um, quercetin. We've tried a whole variety of uh, fluvoxamine, things that were used in the acute illness. And in my opinion. I don't think any of them work. Uh, only uh, a paper I've been impressed with came from Japan, a preclinical study using a known supplement called natokinase, natokinase, N-A-T-T-O-K-I-N-A-S-E. It's a Japanese product and it did dissolve the spike protein, but leave the cells and tissues intact, a preclinical study, but very impressive. And, and natokinase, I think, holds a lot of hope 
Uh, we need prospective randomized trials. We need human data. Uh, but as we sit here today, uh, you know, I'm greatly concerned. Two thirds of the world took these products yes, yeah. without asking what's in them. That's that's concerning to me, too. They, they, everybody was so unquestioning. Um, in the absence of a spectrum of symptoms, uh, is there anything outside of somebody's demographic data that is going to give an indication that they're at higher risk? I, I read something about uh, some people giving or getting getting uh, vaccines that were more inert batches, something about the mixing of the vials. And so I was wondering if you knew anything about that, if some people, um, is that why some people are having no adverse reaction? Um, why do you think it's so much worse for some people outside of comorbidities? Well, let's take the, the, the survey data first. Zogby survey done last summer, valid representative sample, two thirds of Americans took the vaccine. 85% are fine. Nothing happened, right. they're fine. 15% have some new disease or problem. So 15% is way too high, but 85% are fine. So, so that's the good news. And hopefully if they don't take any more, they'll continue to be fine. There's a few patient factors to point out, and this is very recent. Uh, for sudden death, a prolonged QT interval at baseline, that's an EKG finding, as well as a genetic abnormality called the SCN5A mutation. There's gonna be a lot more there. Um, I would say baseline forms of cardiomyopathy, heart failure, or heart disease put somebody at increased risk for sure. And I would say baseline blood clotting disorders or a family history of blood clotting disorders, watch out uh, because the vaccines produce the spike protein. The spike protein is physically found in the blood clots. It's physically drives blood clotting, the spike protein. Uh, so we know there are blood clotting disorders. Case in point, Deion Sanders, former NFL player, has a family issue of blood clotting, has a shower of blood clots on the arterial system, shoot to his legs, has nine surgeries, amputations, uh, can't run anymore. It just, it's just a mess. Uh, so we know blood clotting disorders, watch out. On the product side, this is very interesting. You know, the VARES system says a purpose of the VARES system is to look from lot to lot variability. So the Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson Johnson, and Novavax uh, they actually don't make their own vaccines with the exception of Novavax. Uh, they actually farm it out to biodefense contractors. So for instance, Moderna is made by a biodefense contractor, a DOD contractor, Resilience. They have a big uh, factory in, in Mississauga, Ontario. Moderna doesn't even inspect the final fill and finish on the products. Neither is Good fine. Lord, really? No. Under EUA, under emergency use authorization, there are no inspections for quality, purity, or contaminants, none. So they don't even know what's in these. Uh, data that was submitted to the Emer uh, European Medicine Association now uh, quite some time ago showed a tremendous variation, over a 70% variation in the quantity of messenger RNA. It makes sense. These are novel products around lipid nanoparticles. They tend to congeal together. Uh, it's like trying to fill uh, vials with uh, vegetable soup. You're not going to get an equal amount of vegetables in each, uh, you know, in each ladle. And so uh, we have a situation where almost certainly there's lot to lot variability in messenger RNA concentration. And now analyses of VARES have shown that 80% of the deaths with Pfizer have come from 30% of the lots, 80% of the deaths with Moderna from 20% of the lots. Presumably from more, more concentrated mRNA strains. It's either that or contaminants, but the leading theory is hot lots because the mechanism of de death is related to the spike protein. So in the autopsy studies, 
The spike protein is found in the heart causing damage. It's found in the brain causing damage and it's found directly in blood clots. So we think it's probably an RNA concentration. So, you know, put, put two and two together, the people who have taken these shots and they're perfectly fine. They probably didn't get much messenger RNA. Right. So no harm, no foul. They're probably going to be good. That's actually the good news. So if you haven't experienced any adverse events, you don't have any um, comorbidities, uh, hereditary or otherwise, uh, you can be pretty certain that you're going to be okay? I think so. But I, I do have to tell you my clinical practice, um, I've had a couple of women now develop blood clots about 18 months after the vaccine. And I'm talking big ones that shot to the lungs. Now, what was the wild card? The wild card is intervening SARS-CoV-2 infection, respiratory infection. Ah. Remember, the vaccines don't work. So people get the illness anyway, anyway, and they get another exposure of the spike protein and inflammation. So I've seen this for both myocarditis and for blood clots. Lots of good examples of this, by the way. L. Roker, our favorite weatherman on TV, he takes his first shot. Uh, doctor gives him advice. He does it on TV. He, he timidly asks the doctor, is this safe? The doctor says it's safe. He takes it. He takes multiple shots and he gets COVID-19 illness in the summer of 2022. And then within a month or two, he's in the hospital with blood clots, very serious, was hospitalized and re-hospitalized. Uh, we had another similar vignette with uh, former T Tampa Bay Bucks uh, coach, Bruce Arians. Bruce Arians pushing that product, saying it's the only way to come back. He guarantees the entire Bucks coaching staff and players have taken the vaccine. He guarantees it, puts it out in a press release. Sure enough, after three or four shots, he ends up in the hospital with myocarditis in the fall of 2022. You can't make those things up. Yikes. Um, I'm particularly worried about my friends that got the vaccine while pregnant or right before pregnancy. And then after I had my child, uh, she's a two and a half now, about a year later, I went in for just a, a preconception appointment with my midwife who urged me to get the vaccine immediately, although I had already had COVID and I got um, an antibody test just because I was hoping that this vaccine thing would blow over and that I could use that as proof. Um, naturally, it didn't. Uh, but I was like, listen, I, I've had COVID. I, I had uh, the typical spectrum of symptoms, lost my sense of smell for months and months. I have this positive antibody test. And she said, you need to get the vaccine before you have enough, uh, another baby. It's what's best for your baby. Um, uh, and you can get COVID again. You can get reinfected. And I was like, that's BS. Like, there's no way that's true. None of the science supports that. And she's like, all we do is read clinical papers. Like, you really need to get it. And I was like, I'm absolutely not doing that. Absolutely not. But she did convince a lot of my other friends <laughs> to get it. And I know a few people that got it during their pregnancies. Their children are seemingly fine. Um, but but are, do you expect, have you read a lot of clinical data about what is happening during pregnancy? Because it seems like this is totally uncharted territory. I know the rate of miscarriage is way up. Um there is a physiological reason for this, right? Because of the blood clotting and it crossing the placenta. You know, it's true. And I think that that healthcare worker is going to really regret doing that. I think uh, when her eyes are fully opened and she has a chance to review what's happened, I think there's going to be a real nauseating sense of regret there. Uh, what we know is that the FDA excluded pregnant women and women of childbearing potential and breastfeeding women from ever receiving these vaccines in the clinical trials. So if the FDA excludes this group, they cannot receive it in practice. Cannot. They cannot. Right. The FDA, and there's, these exclusions are very, very important points. They cannot. So the very first pregnant woman 
who went out and took one of these crossed the line and it shouldn't have happened. And what made matters worse in early in 2021, the White House and um, HHS announced the COVID Community Core Program. And the, the website is wecandothis.org. You can check it out. $13 billion with a B flowed. Our tax dollars flowed to a variety of different agencies. One of them was the American College of Obstetrics and, and Gynecology, ACOG. ACOG could, took government money, and before you know it, they were pushing these on pregnant women with no assurances of maternal fetal safety, no assurances of long-term safety for the child. Since that time, there's been a whole series of biased papers. I've looked at the literature, even a meta-analysis, that have concluded it's safe, that they don't see any problems with pregnancy. And uh, and I'm always distrustful of this because it these are all doctors associated with ACOG and editors. They, they took all this money. And sure enough, now independent papers are arising. I posted one today on my Substack, Courageous Discourse, showing nearly a uh, a fourfold increased risk of of hemorrhage for the for the woman delivering the baby, and now Dr. James Thorpe, independent of, of ACOG, has revealed not only the peer-reviewed published literature but also uh, the VARES system, and has a series of uh, publications in the preprint server system going into full publication, showing about a tenfold rise in every bad outcome. So tenfold rise in miscarriages. So that's in the first three months of pregnancy, a stillbirth. Uh, you know. 20-week pregnancies uh, now uh, stillborn, uh, a fetal hemorrhage at birth, maternal hemorrhage at birth, uh, placental hemorrhage and clotting, uh, and uh, and you know it just couldn't get worse. A paper by Hannah and colleagues published in JAMA showed that the genetic material, synthetic messenger RNA, is traveling in breast milk from the mother to the baby. And now we have no idea about this orally ingested, uh, looks like permanent messenger RNA going into the baby's body. That it couldn't get worse. You know, Dr. Ray Stricker, uh, who runs the largest fetal loss clinic in uh, the United States, is in uh, near San Francisco. And I published in 2021 that pregnancy uh, and COVID-19 vaccines should be considered pregnancy category X, X. Pregnancy category says that it's a new product. It has a dangerous mechanism of action. That is the spike protein causes heart damage, neurologic damage, and blood clotting. It's a dangerous mechanism of action. And in pregnancy, when there's no assurances on short, middle, and long-term outcomes, it cannot be used. It's pregnancy category X. If there was a new diabetes drug that came out tomorrow, there's no way I would use it in pregnancy. Absolutely not. And the, the system that they use to grade um, pregnancy safe drugs is so extensive yeah. and um, they've done so, so much, uh, so, so many trials. Like uh, I remember having, I had horrible morning sickness and they were like, all right, you can take Unisom. I look and there are studies on 200,000 women, like extremely well-documented studies on, on Unisom, on Benadryl, on B6, um, and they're still category category B. They're not category A. And then they're just going to roll this out and just give it to pregnant women and tell them that it's what's best for their baby. And women during pregnancy, they're scared. I remember the first few weeks of of this COVID thing, um, I was pretty heavily pregnant. I was freaking out uh, because I'm a hypochondriac and I was heavily pregnant. But it only lasted for a few weeks. And I, and I know that fear as a mother, you know, if you trust doctors, you trust the medical system, you're pregnant and somebody's telling you 
you need to do this for your baby. I mean, my heart goes out to these women that will find out what they did later. But it violates a, just a general understanding. Remember, pregnant women won't have a drop of alcohol. Mm-hmm. They won't even eat soft cheese. Right. They'll, they'll check the package insert for Unisom. I mean, pregnant women will go to all extents to have a natural pregnancy. And, I, and think about this. What pregnant woman would take a, an injection of a novel genetic code for a lethal protein that was engineered in a Chinese biosecurity lab? Oh yeah. You just couldn't. nobody would have done that. The amount of propaganda to make this seem normal was was right. just incredible, right? Right. So it took it just took uh, you know billions of dollars that flowed from the U.S. government. ACOG saying you should do it, having all the doctors and and midwives and others say to do this, and then have actually women do this. This is astonishing. Uh, today on my Substack, I show that at any given time, only twenty percent of pregnant women actually did it. And now, uh, in terms of uh, the current rate of any pregnant woman doing it during pregnancy right now, less than 2%. Oh, yeah. So believe it or not, the message came through. People talk to other people. And, uh, you know, the word is out. You mentioned survey data. Uh, Over the holidays, we had the Rasmussen report came in, which was stunning, representative uh, survey sampling. 28% of Americans know somebody who died after COVID vaccination, 28%. Mm-hmm. We have the Zogby survey. I mentioned 15% of people who took the vaccine. They themselves say they have a new disease because of the vaccine. We have the Mark Skidmore MSU survey now fully published. 22% of Americans know somebody who's had a serious reaction or a serious adverse event. And then finally, we have the CDC vSafe data. 7 to 8% of people have to go to the hospital or urgent care immediately after taking one of these products. By, by those four survey sources, word of mouth alone, word of mouth alone has basically spread a safety concern across the country. We don't need social media, major media. It's simply word of mouth. Well, that is somewhat reassuring. I mean, it's, it's bleak after um, so many people have gotten it. But I am happy to hear that at least some people are developing some sense of skepticism now. Um, I wanted to touch back on the psychological aspects of dealing with this. There was so much focus on this during COVID, on the psychological aspects of the virus, especially anxiety and fear. And it's interesting and surely by design that these are the same psychological outcomes resulted, resulting from mandated isolation. Um, I'm seeing so few experts discuss this. They almost always conflate the government response with the public's reaction to the virus, which, of course, was heavily influenced by mandates and by government. And we've seen varying outcomes in countries like um, Sweden and Bangladesh. Um, I've heard you discuss the psychology behind mass fear campaigns, and I was hoping we could talk about that for a few minutes. Do you think that the government seized on a pre-existing free-floating anxiety that modernity has created in order to develop basically um, universal compliance for anything. In, in the book by Peter Bregan, who's a psychiatrist, it's called COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. He outlines in the back of the book a timeline. And so for this pandemic, uh, there have been 36 pandemic preparedness planning events that started back in 2012. 25 of them Uh, generate a written documents and six of them were filmed. You can actually watch them. Event 201, which was done in 2019, again, before the pandemic, even the CDC director from China came over to the United States involved. So in the planning for this, 
the U.S. and Chinese plan for this in the open. Uh, they in all these documents, uh, it's well described that the use of fear that they plan to use fear to drive people to follow a false government narrative. And the fear elements were that it was untreatable. It never was going to be treated. There won't be any updates on treatment. There'll be no government promotion of treatment uh, in a multi-drug protocol as an outpatient. Won't be any government-driven advances in hospital treatment. And that uh, masking, lockdowns, losing jobs, uh, losing family, friends, churches shut down is going to amplify the anxiety. And all that anxiety is going to be funneled to one activity. And that is mass vaccination. And the goal was to get a needle in every arm and, and, and fear and anxiety were a big part of it. Do you think that this was a population quelling exercise? My co-author in our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, my co-author John Leake says, pay attention to public utterances, particularly aspirational ones. So for example, Bill Gates, uh, and the Gates Foundation, we think, figures in prominently in what we call the biopharmaceutical complex. Around 2010 or so, he says, mass vaccination could be used to curb the world's population. Mm-hmm. He said it. Yeah. Uh, his yeah. word, it's recorded. It's, it's on the front of a British tabloid. Uh, another one is Klaus Schwab, head of the World Economic Forum. He publishes a book within three months of COVID-19. So you can tell you, this book was on its way. He said COVID-19 will be a limited window to establish a new world order. Mm-hmm. You know, these are aspirational statements. Right now in Davos, Switzerland, the World Economic Forum is meeting. And there's, you know, there's U.S. congressmen over there, pharmaceutical uh, CEOs. And there is a, are a ton of aspirational statements about more vaccines, more shots. And uh, it's almost as if the world rotates around vaccination right now. Right. I feel like people aren't asking enough enough questions about about why and, and how it's going to hurt them and it's going to hurt their families. Um, I did have a clinical question for you. Um, how is the psychological impact of everything that's happened around vaccination and, uh, and about COVID um, and the isolation especially? How has it affected the treatment and clinical outcomes of your patients that are dealing with COVID? I've treated hundreds and hundreds of patients. I'm really glad you brought it up because my heart is broken for our seniors. You know, what happened is, uh, you, you know, and young people like you and me get the virus. It's very mild. It's easy. It's honestly, it's no different than a common cold. But for a senior citizen, it can be pretty serious. And uh, there, what Americans were told is if, if their grandmother or grandfather or someone, a loved one in assisted living or skilled nursing got COVID, they couldn't see them. So now a senior citizen is trying to manage the medications, but in isolation. Mm-hmm. Then they were told, that there were no treatments. So the doctors didn't give them any treatment. So you can imagine, let's say an 80 year old person who lives by themselves, they have heart and lung disease, background cancer, diabetes, and they get COVID. And they sit there day by day, the family calling them, how are you doing? No medication, no help. And they progressively worsen. You can imagine how panicky these phone calls get day by day by day. And at some point in time, there is just sheer panic and they toss in the towel and they said, I'm, I'm going to call 911 and go to the hospital. Mm-hmm. In fact, there were early reports, 911, even in the worst part of the pandemic, the vast majority of people brought to the hospital did not need the ventilator. They, did, they were actually in pretty good shape. It was just panic. And so they're brought to the hospital. And then from there, they go into isolation. Now they're really never going to see their loved ones again. 
They've lost all their medical autonomy. They can't take their home medicines, even if they had treatment. Uh, they uh, have no one come in and see them. When they do come in, they're wearing you know, hazmat suits and, and personal protective gear. And these hospitalizations were long. Many of them were four, five, six weeks, sometimes two months, three months. I mean, it couldn't be worse. So I can tell you for senior citizens, the fear and anxiety was through the roof. And, uh, and sadly, many of them thought they had no other opportunity than to take a vaccine. Now, now three years later into the pandemic, uh, there's a much different view. Our CDC reports today, only 45% of nursing home residents are even taking any more shots. The vast majority mm -hmm. are not taking them. Right. Among nursing home workers, and that was the employment group where theoretically there could be a benefit if these actually worked. They're seeing all the safety side effects of these vaccines. Only 10% are taking anymore. Okay. That's also reassuring. Um, I've gotten a lot of pushback from members of my audience, uh, even, uh, about taking the vaccine to protect one's family. They're saying, I have to do it for financial reasons. I always thought this was such a stupid argument because I'm like, you're no of no financial use to your family if you're dead, right? Um, and I've heard you discuss the social contract. Could you elaborate a little bit on this and why in this particular situation where people so unwilling to push back on the vaccine mandates um, or to think outside of the box when it came to getting a new job? You know, that's a, let's just take the circumstance of being employed. And there's a large employer and they say, well, you have to take one of these. People never asked about the social contract. Say, okay, if I take it, do I get a month more of employment? Do I get two months? Do I get six months? Mm -hmm. Do I get a year? Is that going to change? People actually didn't know what they were getting for this. They just said, well, I was told I have to take it. So they didn't understand the social contract. Uh, and in so many employers, uh, you, you know, they really burned the employees. So they had a mandate for a few months and they dropped it. You're right. right. And people are saying, well, why did I take it if you were going to drop it a few months later? That happened for United Airlines, almost all the other airlines. Uh, the employees felt burned. Uh, they really felt burned. Uh, you know, as a case example, uh, on my wife's side of her friends, um, there was a young gal and she didn't want to take the, the vaccine, but the university said she had to take it. So she hemmed and hawed and this and that. And she says, well, you know, I, I really want to go on campus. I, I missed my whole first year of college. So she takes the vaccine. And then the college turns around and says, you know what? There's too much COVID. We're, we're going to do a WebEx for another year. <laughs> so, so she never gets to go on campus. She develops a horrible um, hyperplastic uh, lymphadenopathy syndrome, uh, has multiple health encounters, a complicated tonsillectomy. She's basically wrecked after one of these shots. And, and she's just, the, the regret is through the roof. It's like, why did I do that? What, what was the social contract of doing this? Uh, employers were so disingenuous. Universities uh, were not transparent at all. Uh, in fact, the worst vignette that I'm aware of incurred in a university, and this goes to show you how vindictive and how um, how much acrimony can be around this. There was a graduate student, upper Midwest, uh, PhD. You know how long it takes to get a PhD? It can take years and qualifying exams and and all of this. And he's he's working along his way in his PhD. And they said, well, you have to take one of these. He goes, I'm not going to. I can't. He had a he had a good reason not to. They said, you have to. He said, I'm not going to. He goes, I'm just transferred to another university that doesn't require it. The university met the registrar, the faculty, the rules committee, 
they changed the rules of transfer for him to be sure he can't transfer his credit to another university. Why? So they erased years of his life in a punitive way, in a punitive way. And it's going on as we speak. You know, the military, which had some of the, you know, the, the most stringent uh, mandates, recently they had to let go of the mandates for active duty. They still haven't done it for uh, guard or reserve, but uh, they, they had to let go of it because they weren't going to get the funding. We had enough senators, congressmen, finally the White House knuckled under. And in the appropriation, they were told, listen, you can't have the mandates anymore. So they dropped the mandates. Do you know there are senators? I know one for sure, Mitt Romney and others. They feel there should be penalties, that there shouldn't be any back pay. In fact, the soldiers should be penalized for their decision not to take it. So it's in the minds of people around the vaccine to hurt other people. That's that's so shocking. But I'm still having some degree of difficulty with extending empathy to people that voluntarily and unquestioningly took the vaccine, because I just feel like at this point in time, at this point in human history, how can you put your health, your trust um, in the federal government, in any government institution, in any other country? And I, I just don't I just don't really understand. And so it makes me furious. I mean, I guess I for a second there was feeling pretty bad for pregnant women that took it. But, you know, we all have a responsibility to take care of ourselves, take care of our families, to make our own decisions. And I'm very frustrated with people um, that that did this without asking any questions. Um, and that in the whole time they were calling me granny killer. And are you familiar with um, Emily Oster? Yes. She is. Yes, yeah, she is. a She's a statistician. She wrote my favorite pregnancy book. Um, she uh, really broke down the risks associated with, with normal things that you interact with during pregnancy. And it helped me manage my neuroticism. I just, I read that book three times while I was pregnant and I was so grateful for her. But then this COVID thing happens and she is a moron. She's a total moron. And then she writes this article for The Atlantic. I'm sure my audience is familiar with it, where she wants to make peace. She wants to make peace. But in that article, she made basically no admissions about what they did. She said, we shouldn't have taken children out of schools. That was the sole admission that, that she made. And she still touted the mRNA vaccine in that article. And I'm, and I'm reading this and I'm like, I can't coexist with people that wanted me dead, that were saying that I was trying to kill people because I wanted to um, have free movement in society during COVID. Um, like, how can I live amongst these people? And, and that's the, the mentality of the federal government too, especially with this CDC, FDA, quasi admission that this might cause ischemic stroke in, in people above 65. That's not really what I'm looking for. What I want is for people to come out and say, we bungled this terribly. We have lost the innumerable human lives through our own error. And if I hear that, then like maybe I'll be ready to make amends with these people. But I'm still really mad. I'm still really mad. I mean, so, so how do you think we should deal with that? I mean, do you, am I just supposed to live amongst these people after what they've done? Well, I tell you, I, I think uh, this has really got you worked up. Uh, you know, Emily Oster did publish in The Atlantic this idea of jumping to amnesty. And, you know, what I point out, listen, I'm an expert commentator. I've made as many public statements in the last three years than any public health official, probably more. And uh, on this situation, you know, our CDC has said that they've made large mistakes. They've mm -hmm. come out, they haven't said what they are, but but you know we're ready for them, right? Because they've said they've made large mistakes. Uh, so when this happens, you know, there's like a four-step process. First is to recognize uh, that the wrongdoing has occurred. Uh, and then to, you know, the step is repentance. 
then the next step is, uh, you know, an attempt for forgiveness, that is to people who were wronged uh, to forgive. And then the last step is am amnesty. But it, it's a four-step process. The first is admission and wrongdoing. And we have wrongdoing going on today. I mean, a great example of this is we have illegal promotion of the vaccines going on. Uh, you know, remember, no biopharmaceutical product can be promoted or advertised without giving the risks and the theoretical benefits. But you can't skip the risks. And to this day, there still are commercials going and oh, yeah. public service messages and things on Twitter that say to take it without describing uh, that it's possible to get fatal myocarditis, which is published in the literature, fatal blood clots, uh, permanent disability and neurologic damage. I mean, these all have to be disclosed. So the, the wrongdoing continues to occur as we speak. And wrongdoing hasn't stopped. Uh, we have to stop it first. And you know, a method of doing that is pulling the vaccines off the market. If the vaccines come off the market, you know, the mandates are uh, become a moot point. And then we can start to repair the country. I did call for all the vaccines to be removed from the market on December 7th, 2022 in the U.S. Senate. That's permanently in the Senate record and in the National Archives. Uh, World Council for Health officially called for them to be pulled off the market June 11th of 2022. We've had calls in the UK Parliament, Australian Parliament, EU Parliament, Supreme Court of India. Now, I was the first uh, a public official, uh, public figure to state in the Texas Senate in March of 2021 safety concerns. But, you know, we, we let this go on far too long. They need to be off the market. Absolutely. And I do want to clarify, I think that the majority of people we're, um, we're duped into this. I think that they're kind of sheeple. They're just following blindly. But there is a, a really high degree of treachery from the federal government that, that can't be overlooked. Like, like, like you said, why are they not admitting that any adverse events are happening from these when, pe when young people are just dropping dead? Um, I never remember anything like this happening when I was growing up. I went to a high school with 2,500 people. If some young guy had dropped dead on the, on the football field, it would have just swept through the town. People never would have stopped talking about it. And now it's just, they're just acting like things like this are normal. Like, like this is just norm, a normal part of, of, uh, of a teenage life or something like that to have a friend die of, of some heart related cardiac event. It's, it's just insane. At what point are people going to look at the things that are going on in their lives and say, you know, this doesn't match up to my life experience um, uh, growing up. I, I just, I don't feel like people are coming along quickly enough and, and it's frustrating me. It's almost as if people are in a trance uh, and it's proposed that maybe there is this trance like state where people aren't thinking Correctly. You know, the vignette of Ernesto Ramirez comes up uh, here. There's a, a single father. He lives in South Texas. He's a truck driver. Um, he's not sure about the vaccine. So he takes Pfizer himself and the father's fine. And then he, you know, he's following what he's told to do. He has his 16 year old boy vaccinated. And a few days later, he dies of myocarditis playing basketball. He has me review the autopsy. It's clear cut fatal myocarditis. And Ernesto Ramirez goes out public and warns as many people as he can. Uh, he's doing everything humanly possible. He's displaying the correct emotional outrage of a parent who's lost a child after one of these vaccines. The question is, where's the outrage of all the other parents? Where is the outrage? Listen, if the outrage is there, it'll be heard. Uh, you know, in case some point, here's another vignette. Uh, Illinois Democratic Congressman Sean Kasten. Sean Kasten's daughter, Emily, age 17, 
uh, you know, he, he himself is promoting the vaccine, said he's taking the vaccine, said he's going to take his kids to take it. He's messaging this, tweeting this. Sure enough, uh, his daughter dies in her sleep, dies in her sleep. And putting it all together, she took the vaccine, she died in her sleep. Later on, he discloses she died of a fatal arrhythmia. Yes, that's what happens in COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis. One dies in their sleep. And, and looking at casting, he's never come out and, and expressed any remorse, like, wow, I really regret doing this. Uh, I want to, you know, I want to warn others. It's horrible what happened to me. He almost looks like he's in a trance. Uh, I mentioned weatherman Al Roker getting blood clots in hospitals. He doesn't come out and warn people, uh, wow, this could happen. How about um, how about ESPN sports announcer uh, uh, Kirk Herbstreet? Uh, he uh, takes uh, three or four of these shots, gets COVID, gets blood clots, uh, you know, you know, it's on blood thinners. He doesn't come out and express any remorse. Uh, Deion Sanders, I mentioned him. He actually makes an entire docu-series about his event. He doesn't put two and two together that it was the vaccine that caused the problem. He blames it all on the family history of, of blood clotting. So I'm not sure that it's actually registering in people's minds. They're not acting like they actually realize What's happening to them? Well, I think they're in deep denial because it's too it's too painful to make that admission um, that you've made such a terrible error with with such a sad outcome. Uh, and that does require a degree of courage that I just don't think maybe even the average person has. But these people are under moral obligation to come out and talk about um, how the vaccine has destroyed their lives. They are under that obligation for, for mankind. I, we need that information. Everybody needs that information. It needs to be publicized and circulated um, because that's really all we can do right now. I completely agree. Just like uh, disclosing vaccine status was needed to get into concerts and stadiums, school, universities, vaccine status must be disclosed on all of these unexpected deaths. As a doctor, that's the first question I ask. It's the first question I ask. And a sudden unexpected death when we, the peer-reviewed literature shows there are fatal syndromes that develop, unless there's some other explanation, it is the vaccine until proven otherwise. And the families can come out right away and reassure us and say, listen, they didn't take it and we're good. Uh, otherwise, what's going to happen is there's going to be a CDC record search. At some point in time, everyone's going to put two and two together and it's all going to come out. That is a great way to end this episode. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, what you're doing is so courageous and I wish more doctors would do it and I'm doing everything I can to get your word out. So if you're watching this, please like, subscribe, share on every platform. Um, once again, this is Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you so much for joining me. All of his information um, and the articles we mentioned are below. So I'm going to go ahead and end this broadcast. Thank you again. Thank you.